You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast with Rebecca Larson. England had changed quite a bit since Elizabeth I had died in 1603. There was the gunpowder plot, the reign and execution of Charles I, and of course the English Civil War and Oliver Cromwell. Our guest today specializes in Catherine of Braganza, the wife of King Charles II. A very warm welcome to first-time guest, Susan Abernethy. Hi, Rebecca. I'm so happy to have you on, Susan. I don't think listeners have any idea how long you and I have known one another, because we go back to probably 2015. Yes, that's right. Yeah, quite a ways back. And I'm so excited to have you on today, because we're going to talk about Catherine of Braganza. And we all have a story behind why we chose the historical figures that we did, And I'm curious, why did you choose Catherine as your research topic? I I don't even know if I could explain it. I've just, I read about her and she just seemed so interesting. And another thing is historians seem to ignore her. And so I wanted to kind of shine a light on her and just show that, you know, there was more to her than what historians were saying. That happens quite a bit with women in history, doesn't it? Yes, it does, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I am always interested to know more about the woman before she married. Can you give me and our listeners just maybe a little bit of insight into who Catherine was prior to her marriage to Charles II? Yes, you would. this is really interesting because um, she was born in 1638, but her father did not become king of Portugal until 1640. So in um, her early years, she grew up in the countryside in her father's house just west of Lisbon. And then when he became king, the family moved to the royal palace uh, in Lisbon on the Tagus River. And they gave her an education that was equivalent to what was taught in a convent. And there's some evidence that she received her education in a convent that was very near the royal palace. And we don't really know if she lived in the palace and the nuns taught her there or if she actually lived in the convent while she was in school. And it's also possible that they took her to the convent, if not daily, at certain intervals. And then when her just before her father died in 1656, he endowed Catherine with um, properties and income. And this allowed her to leave the convent and live at court under her mother's guidance until her marriage treaty was finalized in 1662. Normally, when we discuss royal marriages, there's a mention of the woman being quite young, but that really wasn't the case with Catherine, was it? No, she was 23. So she was fully matured. Do we know why? Why did it take so long? Yes, there was a lot of back and forth of negotiations for her to marry several different people, one of which was King Louis XIV of France. So it was just a matter of coming up with a husband for Catherine. Do we have any idea what her reaction was when she was told that she was going to marry Charles? Oh, yes, she was thrilled. Um, You know, her her marriage had been planned for many years, and her mother had educated her specifically for the purpose of marrying royalty. 
And so she started taking English lessons with Father Russell, who was an Englishman who spoke Portuguese and had been part of the treaty negotiations. And then she also started practicing walking in high heels in the English fashion. So she was well prepared. One of the things I found interesting when I was doing a little bit of research before the show was that Catherine was described as short with black hair and protruding teeth. But Charles himself in a letter, I believe, said that she wasn't a beauty exactly, but that he liked her eyes. (laughs) Do you have any more to add to that? Um, Well, if you look at the various portraits of her, her eyes are the same in all the portraits. Uh, So I believe that was one of her attributes. Her beautiful eyes. That's interesting that you say that. I never noticed when I was looking through all of the portraits that that was. I noticed she had beautiful eyes and that they definitely made sure that her eyes looked beautiful. But I don't think she was unattractive by modern standards by any means. No, I don't either. Now, she did have, you know, when she was in Portugal, she had an unusual hairstyle, but she knew how to, you know, go with the flow and she ended up changing her hairstyle once she got to England. Do we know what her reaction was as far as Charles's appearance? No, we don't. (laughs) But the thing is, she had received letters from Charles before she came to England and he was very um, loving, almost romantic in these letters, you know, so she probably loved him even before she ever saw him. So it wouldn't matter what he looked like to her. One of the things that I find interesting, and I think most of the people listening are going to want to know about, is Charles and all of his mistresses. Do we know when Catherine arrived in England, how long did it take for her before she realized that her husband um, liked women a lot? Well, I think that her mother, who was very politically savvy, had told her that Catherine or that that Charles, you know, had mistresses, but, and, and, and it was really hard for Catherine because she was a princess, you know, and she expected certain behaviors from the courtiers and everything. And she didn't get that from the mistresses. But I think the turning point was when her mother-in-law, the Dowager Queen Henrietta Maria came to England. I think that she was Catholic and Catherine was Catholic. And so they would sit down and talk. And I think her mother-in-law told her, you know, Charles is going to have mistresses and you just need to figure out how to to live with that. It seems like such a foreign thing nowadays, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> it I, does. I do want to jump forward just a little bit and we'll get back to the mistresses more as we discuss today. After this short break, we'll return with more about Catherine of Braganza, beginning with where was she during the Great Fire of London? Four years after her arrival in England, I I read, you know, the big thing, 1666, and that date is significant because of the Great Fire of London. And I had read that during the Great Fire of London, Charles II went out to try and save the city. Do we know, uh, did, where was Catherine at the time? Did she have any involvement? What kind of information do we have about Catherine during the Great Fire of London? Catherine and her sister-in-law, Anne Hyde, the Duchess of York, they were at Whitehall during the fire, and they were anxiously awaiting any kind of news about what was happening. And 
on September 5th, which was about three days into the fire, Charles had commissioned Catherine to take certain valuables from Whitehall um, to Hampton Court. So on the 5th, Anne and Catherine were packing up their valuables and their, you know, all of their things, and they were planning to go to Hampton Court to get away from the fire. And the good news was that the fire stopped on the 6th. So they, they stayed. What a scary time, though, to be in London. You know, London was made of timber primarily at the time. (laughs) And, you know, they talk about how that summer was hot and dry and it was it was just waiting to ignite. And it just so happened. And I think this was also during the time when Elizabeth, the first wardrobe or a lot of her dresses were destroyed, too. I don't know. Does that ring a bell to you? No, it doesn't. I I know that a lot of her dresses were left over by the time that um, James the first came to London and his wife, Anne of Denmark, you know, used a lot of those dresses for her um, pageants and things. And Mm -hmm. she I think she wore some of them, too. Wow. Interesting. I'm always interested in the clothing because, you know, there's so few of it that still survives today. Mm hmm. One of the things Catherine's probably best known for is tea, but she didn't necessarily bring it to England, did she? She more popularized it? That's correct. We have quite a bit of evidence that merchants brought tea to England around 1637, and the first advertisement for tea appeared in 1658, and by 1660, Parliament was actually taxing tea, so that was well before Catherine came. To England, but what she did do is um, Catherine and many of the aristocratic ladies just made the, the the social drinking of tea popular. So it's not like she invented tea. That's right. <laughs> the Chinese invented tea. <laughs> right. I, I feel like it's so attached to her that it has become this huge thing. But I think it's important to understand that it was in England before she just made it more popular. Absolutely. One of our listeners wants to know, did you know, do you have any idea if she took her tea with milk or sugar? You know, I think that's one of history's mysteries. We'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're looking at Charles II and Catherine of Braganza, and we've briefly touched on the fact that he had many mistresses, but I kind of would like to look a little bit more at their marriage as a whole and whether or not they were happy. Do we know if if they were happy as a couple? I would say that Catherine was always happy because she loved Charles so much. And Charles went through different periods where he did, you know, the two of them did get along well. But probably by the time of Louise de Carouel, when she became his mistress, that was when the marriage pretty much broke up because I think Charles really did love Louise quite a bit. And he established her with rooms at court and Catherine kind of retired to Somerset House. So that was probably the biggest break. Then the Popish plot happened. And once that happened, there was kind of a little reunion between Catherine and Charles for a while. Well, I'm interested in that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Popish plot and their rekindling? Charles was... He was suspicious from the very beginning of Titus Oates and the plotting that was going on. And from the very beginning, he defended Catherine. And when Catherine, when Parliament asked 
to search Catherine's home of Somerset House. I mean, she she swiftly obliged them and gave them everything they asked for in the way of documentation. And there's actually a letter that she wrote to her brother, King Pedro in Portugal, that praised Charles for defending her. And all things considered, the people of England knew that Catherine loved Charles and would never do anything to hurt her husband. You know, they were accusing her of trying to poison him, which was pretty ridiculous. So in the end, it was her reputation that saved her when the House of Lords declined to prosecute Catherine. I'm so fascinated by their relationship. She was, I mean, by today's standard, relatively young when they married, but they didn't Mm -hmm. have any children. Maybe I can have you touch base a little bit on whether or not Catherine was ever pregnant and what may have happened. Yes, we do have, we have uh, confirmed by her doctors that she did have a miscarriage in February of 1666. Um, And after that, Charles does mention twice in letters to his sister Manette in France that Catherine thought she was pregnant, but we don't have any record that she had a miscarriage from those instances. So it's really hard to say if those were real pregnancies or not. From my research, it looks like she was pregnant anywhere from three to four times, but only one do we know was an actual pregnancy that she miscarried. That whole thing is so sad because Charles had all these mistresses who were giving birth to children. I mean, they sometimes speculate he had, what, 20 illegitimate children? Yes. (laughs) Do we have any idea how Catherine responded to that or may I I don't like to say felt because we don't know how these people felt at the time but do we have anything um, in the contemporary records that give us an indication on how she felt about it well she did actually um, she was actually very fond of the Duke of Monmouth who was Charles's eldest son and she would come to his defense a couple of times when he got into trouble But as far as the other children, I don't think she had anything to do with those other children because, you know, the mothers would keep them away. So it's not like she took care of any of those children or was in contact with any of them. So we don't really know how she felt other than the Duke of Monmouth. And Catherine would treat all of Charles's mistresses with calculated friendship. And this just, um, you know, endeared her more with Charles. Mm. And you will find that several of his mistresses are listed as being employed in her household. Um, There's some comments in the historical records that Catherine did complain to Charles about the mistresses and their mistreatment of her. Um, And curiously, she did remain on excellent and even friendly terms with Frances Stewart for many years. Uh, She happened to be Catholic and never surrendered to Charles's advances. So her love for Charles pretty much triumphed over any humiliation she suffered. Well, they had a time where they didn't get along very well. And then you mentioned the Popish plot, which kind of brought them closer together again. And that fascinated me that he went Mm -hmm. from uh, being just so loyal to his mistresses to kind of turning back to Catherine after that and and showing more love and affection toward her. Well, Ronald Hutton, in his biography of Charles, he mentions this because um, Charles was extremely loyal to Catherine and his brother, James. And I think it's because they were loyal to him. 
And so he was just returning that. He knew that they would love him no matter what. Are there any stories of any just terrible things that the mistresses would have done toward Catherine? Yes, there is one story where um, there was an official banquet going on and um, Catherine had asked that Louise not attend that banquet and which she had a right to do because she was on Catherine's list of employees, basically. And Louise showed up and created a scene at this banquet and Catherine was in tears. So that's the kind of thing she had to had to put up with. The poor thing. I always feel so bad for these queen consorts who just have to put up with so much because they're a woman. That's right. Well, let's look a little bit more. You know, I I want to talk about her life after Charles, too. And one of the things. So, Charles, what happened after Charles II died to Catherine? Well, um, James II and his wife, Mary of Modena, were both Catholics and they treated Catherine very well while she lived in her palace at Somerset House. But after the glorious revolution of 1688, where William and Mary came and took the throne, um, Catherine and William III had a pretty tolerable relationship, but she did not enjoy any favor with Queen Mary II. And this was most likely because uh, Catherine was Catholic and Mary was a staunch Protestant. And Catherine had always been kind and generous with James II's daughters. So it was kind of a curious state of affairs. Um, She continued to live at Somerset House, and she also leased a house in Hammersmith beginning in 1686, where she did um, uh, extensive renovations. Um, A lot of people might not know this, but Catherine started a school in Hammersmith for um, to, to teach the daughters of Catholic nobility because it was against the law to do this. But she did that kind of secretly. And so this house that she had in Hammersmith was close to that school. And she would go back and forth between Hammersmith and Somerset. But at one point, things got really dicey in London, and she was pretty much being attacked when she went to worship in her chapel at Somerset House. So she ended up in a small country cottage to get away. And she was there for almost a year before she went back to London. So was it a year after Charles died before this she was for this was for several years after Charles died. She did not leave England until 1692. Um, another problem that she had was she needed permission from her brother to return to Portugal. And she also needed ships to transport all of her goods. So she relied on William III for those ships to take her home. It's just amazing to me that an English queen consort left England and went back to her native country. Did we experience that at all prior to her? Because I can't think of any examples. No, I cannot. I can't think of any off the top of my head either. It was very... um, It's a very unique situation. Her marriage treaty actually stated that she had the right to return to Portugal if Charles died. Oh, that's an interesting term in there. Mm -hmm. So she goes to Portugal. How long is she there before she becomes regent for her nephew? She became regent pretty quickly. Um, her, Her brother was very ill. Um, he, both Catherine and her brother had a 
skin disease called erysipelas. And he suffered from that. And then he also had a stroke. And so while he was recovering from his stroke, he made her regent. And the the Portugal had been drawn into the, the complicated war of the Spanish succession. They had made an alliance with England and some other countries to fight for the Austrian candidate for King of Spain. And Catherine took this well-deserved opportunity to prove to the English that they had greatly underestimated her. So while she may not have had the political savvy of a Cardinal Mazarin, she proved worthy of the challenge of running the government. Um, Because of her diligence, she recruited soldiers. Um, She remounted the cavalry and she facilitated the movement of the troops. She established magazines of food for men and forage for animals. And this was a phase of war that had previously been overlooked. And in her dealings with her council of state, she heeded their advice, but she did not hesitate to take an independent viewpoint when circumstances required. And the English party in Portugal were genuinely impressed with Catherine's energy. And the the English ambassador informed London the war was progressing with vigor because the queen enforced her decisions and those taking the orders complied. That was going to be my question was, how did they respond to a woman in power in Portugal? But it sounds like it was in a positive way. Well, at first it went fairly well. But then, of course, there were some men on the council that, you know, didn't like it. And we're in opposition to her. But she she was very strong. You've been researching Catherine of Berganza for quite some time. And one of our listeners wants to know if her correspondence or correspondences have been researched much. Was this something that you were able to look into at all? Yes. Yes. Um, actually, the Edgerton manuscript I-534 in the British Library has... 80 original letters of Catherine's. And many of these letters have been translated and published in English in the journals of the British Historical Society of Portugal and in two biographies of her by Lilius Campbell Davidson and Janet McKay. So it is possible to read these letters. Some of them are um, actually heart-wrenching because she wrote many letters to her brother you know, begging him for permission to return to Portugal. And that's what a lot of the letters are. Do we get any sense of her personality in her letters? Yes. I think what you see is what you get. She was <laughs> she was just a very nice, kind person. And that really shines through. She was no nonsense, you know, pretty much business all the time. I want to know, so while she was in England, she kind of adopted some of the English habits and things that they did. When she was back in Portugal, how did she keep herself entertained? What did she do for fun? Actually, she didn't do very much. (laughs) Well, that's sad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, By the time she returned to Portugal, when she wasn't acting as regent, um, she built herself a farmhouse, basically a small farmhouse. And she released most of her servants. She just had a bare bones group of servants around her. And I think that it was kind of an alternative to her between, you know, actually going into a convent and being at court. 
So she kind of had a middle road and just took this road where she stayed in her farmhouse. (laughs) She just wanted to stay under the radar, it sounds like. Basically, yes. Mm -hmm. So what did the final years of her life look like? Well, she was busy, you know, acting as regent, pretty much. And I I don't know this for certain, and it's really hard to diagnose people, you know, Mm -hmm. from, from looking back and hundreds of years, but I think the stress of being regent affected her because she had some kind of stomach ailment that did her in basically. Oh, that's too bad. Mm -hmm. She seems like she was quite the woman and, and I'm so glad that you've come on today to kind of shed the light on her because I think she's an important figure in history that we should be looking at. I think so. I think she was, um, like I said, she was just a very nice person and she she did not really enter politics that much, but she was always looking out for Portugal the entire time she was queen. If there is one thing that you would like to leave with the listeners about Catherine of Braganza, whether it's something we've covered today or something completely new, what would you like them to know? I guess I would just say that you know, she was basically underestimated um, and that she was really a strong person and did what she had to do for her country. She definitely sacrificed herself for her country, you know, by going to England and leaving Portugal, which she loved. And then when she returned, she served her country and it, it almost killed her, basically. Well, that is the perfect place to end this conversation today. Susan Abernathy, this has been so much fun to chat with you today about Catherine of Braganza. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm happy to bring her to light. Again, a special thank you to our guest today, historian Susan Abernathy, for giving us some great insight into Catherine of Braganza. I've included links in the show notes to three articles written by Susan about Catherine. If you enjoyed today's episode and are interested in learning more about the Great Fire of London, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. New patrons like Leslie, Christy Love, Kelly M, Elizabeth A, Amanda, and Benjamin C, as well as all of my existing patrons, will get exclusive access to the episode when it becomes available. You can also find the link in the show notes to become a patron. Not only will you get access to exclusive content, but because of your generosity, you will also receive a commercial-free listening experience. It's because of your support and the support of all of my patrons that this show can continue to blossom into something amazing. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.